The Revelation Bible Study um, will be meeting this evening in spite of the Super Bowl. We are a very righteous Bible study, <laughs> all right? So, I mean, once once the uh, once the Steelers were out of the game, we all lost interest. So, um, so the, the Revelation Bible Study happens here uh, in the lounge of the church from seven till eight thirty. There is child care available for those of you who need it. We are uh, just starting uh, a study of uh, both of the letters of Peter. So, feel free to join us this evening at seven o'clock right here. So this morning we're going to be uh, launching into a new section uh, of the Gospel of John. All of chapter 7 and the beginning of chapter 8 deal uh, with events that happened during uh, what's called the Feast of Booths. And the Feast of Booths would have taken place about six months after the events that we read about in chapter 6, you know, the, the feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus walking on the water. According to the first century Jewish historian Josephus, the Feast of Booths was the most popular of the three principal Jewish pilgrim feasts. The other two uh, were Passover and Pentecost. And uh, so during the Feast of Booths, there was always a large crowd that was attracted to Jerusalem. During this festival, which is still celebrated, by the way, and you may see it celebrated in some of your neighborhoods, this festival is also called the Feast of Tabernacles, or Sukkot in Hebrew, and it's a time when Jews remember uh, their wandering in the wilderness, and they thank God for all of his provisions uh, during that time. So in spite of the fact that they are now uh, established and settled in the promised land, and they have houses uh, built out of stone, during the Feast of Booths, they build booths or tents uh, outside and they live in them for, for the week to remember what it was like to be a refugee and to be a migrant entirely dependent on God's sustaining hand. So hear the word of God from John chapter 7, verses 1 through 13. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee... He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you were doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet come, fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. 
Almighty God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we ask this morning that you would speak your eternal word into this room and into our hearts. Let us see Jesus and know him for who he is. Give us ears to hear the voice of our shepherd. These favors we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. So I think it's fair to say that there is a who, a what, and a where to the gospel. In the Bible, these three don't often appear in the same place at the same time. Some parts of the Bible talk about the who, and some parts of the Bible talk about the what, and some parts of the Bible talk about the where, but it's rare to find all three, who, what, and where, in the same passage. One of the places where we sort of, kind of, see these three together is in the Great Commission. Jesus' final instructions to his disciples before he ascends into heaven, it's recorded for us in Matthew chapter 28. There we hear Jesus say, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's the who of the gospel. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. That's the what of the gospel. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That's the where of the gospel. The who of the gospel is Jesus himself. And Jesus tells us that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. Sometimes the Bible talks about who Jesus is, his nature, his character, his divine reality. And here in the Great Commission, we learn that he has all authority in heaven and on earth. The Bible talks about Jesus because he is the who of the gospel. The what of the gospel has two parts. First is evangelism. That's going to all the world and making disciples and baptizing them. And second is discipleship. That is teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Sometimes we forget that Jesus didn't only die on a cross. Jesus also taught a new law, a new way of life, a life governed by the dual command to love God and to love our neighbors. And he commands his disciples to follow this new way of life. So evangelism and discipleship are the what of the gospel. And the where of the gospel is the ultimate goal or the outcome or the consummation of God's big plans for all of history. It's hinted at by Jesus' promise that he would be with us always to the end of the age. We get the biggest picture of the where of the gospel in Revelation chapter 21 and 22 where John describes the glories of the new Jerusalem where the redeemed will live eternally, interesting lives, rich lives, in unending and unimpeded presence of God. The who of the gospel is Jesus. The what of the gospel is the law of love that he taught. And the where of the gospel is our eternal destiny with God. I've said it a number of times during the course of this sermon series through the gospel of John that this book is primarily about the identity of Jesus. It's about the who of the gospel. 
That continues to be true in our reading this morning from John chapter 7. So this morning, as we have in many Sundays past, we will talk about who Jesus is, about his identity and his character, but I also want to touch on the what and the where of the gospel, and I want to do that using other parts of scripture which are also written by the Apostle John. You might realize that in the New Testament, the Apostle John contributes one gospel and three letters and the final book of the New Testament, the book of Revelation. These contributions represent three distinct literary genre and they correspond to the who, what, and where of the gospel. The gospel of John is about the who of the gospel, the identity of Jesus. The three letters of John are about the what of the gospel, how we should live as followers of Jesus. And the book of Revelation is all about the where of the gospel, where we will end up one day. So, let's begin with the who of the gospel. Let's continue to explore the identity of Jesus. The first 13 verses of chapter 7, which we read a few moments ago, show us that the landscape is beginning to change. It's becoming dangerous for Jesus. Jesus feels safe in Galilee. That's up in the northern part of the country. That's where Jesus grew up. But he's under threat of death down in Judea. That's in the south, centered on Jerusalem. As his popularity among the common people increases, the opposition from the ruling class is also increasing. And his brothers, the men that he grew up with in Nazareth, in the household of Mary and Joseph, his brothers try to tell Jesus what he needs to do to conduct his ministry, even though they do not actually believe in him. Opposition from those whose power is threatened by Jesus and redirection by those who think that they know better than Jesus. Every leader faces opposition and redirection. Opposition from those whose power is threatened by this leader and redirection by those who think they know better than the leader. One of the most important Books I read while I was in seminary has the catchy title, Generation to Generation Family Process in Church and Synagogue. It's by Dr. Edwin H. Friedman, who is both an ordained rabbi and a licensed family therapist. Friedman argues that churches and synagogues and corporations are, in fact, a lot like families. And he spent a good number of years consulting with corporations and congregations, applying the principles of family therapy to boards of directors and to sessions. His one big idea is that every organization needs a leader who can do two things at the same time. Two things that look like contraries. Number one, a leader must be in touch with the people in the organization. A leader cannot be aloof or disconnected. You can't lead people if you don't know them. A leader must be relational. And second, a leader must know who they are. They need to have a clearly defined sense of self. The term for this in psychotherapy is well-differentiated. 
The leader is connected with his or her people, but at the same time, the leader knows who he or she is apart from those people. As Friedman writes, an organism tends to function best when its head is well differentiated, when its leader is an individual who can say, here I stand. By self-differentiation, Friedman means, quote, the ability of a leader to be a self while remaining a part of the system, end quote. Now, the strange truth is that a self-differentiated leader always brings opposition and redirection. It just goes with the territory. If no one is opposing you or telling you how to do your job, you are probably not leading. What we see in our reading from John this morning is Jesus behaving as a well-differentiated leader. Earlier in the Gospel of John, we saw crowds wanting Jesus to be something that he isn't. A dispenser of free wine and free bread. An earthly king to displace the Roman Empire. And in today's reading, we see the brothers of Jesus, those who knew him in a sense most intimately, telling him how he should conduct his own ministry. Leave here and go to Judea that your disciples may see the works that you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. And Jesus' answer to his brothers, to their unsolicited advice is, No! No, I'm going to do things my own way. I'm going to do things according to my own timing. There is a temptation in leadership to make decisions through public opinion polls. Hold your finger up and figure out which way the wind is blowing and head in that direction. That way the wind is always at your back. Everyone wants to be well thought of. No one enjoys opposition. And so if you do what the crowd wants, you'll enjoy their praise and support. That's the temptation. In fact, leadership by polling doesn't work. Our greatest leaders, the true innovators and benefactors of the human race, have sailed directly into the winds of popular opinion. That's what makes them innovative. That's what allows them to bring new blessings to the people. The brothers of Jesus wanted to redirect him. They wanted to tell him how to do his job. And Jesus doesn't argue with them. He simply states his position and his decision. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. Jesus, a well-differentiated leader, in touch with the people that he leads, but not at all confused about who he is or what he's come to do. Jesus, the who of the gospel. Okay, let's talk about the what of the gospel. John wrote three little letters. He wrote them to the church at large. They are all very beautiful. And so this morning I just want to read some of the language from John chapter 1 and just let it wash over you. All of these verses will be very familiar to you. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just 
to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness. Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. This is the message that you have heard from the beginning that we should love one another. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent His only Son into the world that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He has loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And finally, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. First John. It's chock full of the what of the gospel. And finally, as we prepare this morning for the Lord's Supper, let's talk about the where of the gospel. Using again the words of John, this time from the book of Revelations. The Holy Spirit had taken John up into heaven and he heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give Him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, pure and bright, for the linen is the, is, uh, is the righteous deeds of the saints. On the day of the Lord, when God's judgment is complete, a great throng of saints will raise their voice in triumphant praise. John heard this sound like the roar of many waters, like the sound of the mighty peal of thunder. Each voice competes with every other voice to express the satisfaction and the gladness because God's work is complete. His covenant with His people has been consummated. The marriage of the Lamb, the final union between Christ and His church has come to pass. In an earlier scene in John's vision, God has removed so-called Babylon from the earth since the days of Israel, Babylon, the world system that puts itself in God's place, has made life hard for God's people. Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. The saints shout. While God has always been sovereign, this last day marks the beginning of a new eternal reign in the new heavens and the new earth. The creation now restored with all evil removed, with Babylon destroyed. This is the goal, the destination of God's eternal decree. And it has been in his view ever since the creation of the universe. 
In the new heaven and the new earth, God's full glory is given to His Son and is expressed in the restored world in the midst of the gathering of the glorified saints. Now, we in the West do not face oppressive governments like Christians in other places do. But all of us do labor under the temptations of this world. And every struggle, whether it's external or internal, has a place in God's plan. Babylon serves as the fire that God uses to refine His saints. The bride has made herself ready, the church. God granted that the church would be clothed in fine linens. God will reward the perseverance of His people with fine linen, pure and bright. These are the righteous deeds of the church. These are the good works which God created for us to do. Our wonderful wedding clothes show the beauty of Christ. Those who receive the white robes are the same ones earlier in Revelation who have washed who have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. Christ's blood brought forgiveness from the guilt of sin and the power to break the bondage of sin. On that great and glorious day, we will have the joy of a bride. God will reward us and we will enjoy His reward without boasting. God will delight in our obedience and we will delight in His favor. At the center of all of this celebration will be Christ, the Lamb, who bought our freedom with His blood. We, the church, are the bride of Christ. God's promise, which we read in Hosea 2, will be fulfilled. I will betroth you to me forever, God says. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice In steadfast love and in mercy, I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know that I am the Lord. On that day, on that glorious day, our longing and our waiting will be over. The delight of our hearts who has been separated us, separated from us as he is presently in the glory of heaven. The delight of our hearts will come and receive us. We long for that moment. And it will come. And from that moment on, we will only know more and more deeply the love of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is the blessing that God has in store for us as the church. Our great prize will be to reflect the very glory of Christ. We will be the bride adorned for her husband, having the glory of God. Friends, we will soon gather at that wedding banquet. Today we eat this bread and drink this cup as a foretaste of that wedding banquet. As you receive the bread and the cup this morning, receive Christ again. He is your strength to continue your battle against your personal Babylon. Jesus Christ overcame every enemy. And he will fight for you and with you, enabling you to come overcome all opposition. One day soon, we will join our voices together and sing like mighty peals of thunder, hallelujah, 
For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Amen. Let us pray. Holy Lamb of God, you've made this all possible. You entered this world and you knew our lives and you knew us and you still didn't turn away and you loved us. And you chased us even while we rejected you and found you unappealing. And you died on a cross to pay the penalty for our sins so that when faith finally dawned in our hearts, we might know you and receive you and be united with you. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the who of the gospel and that you are the what of the gospel and that you are the where of the gospel. We thank you that we will see you one day in glory, that we will be united to you as bride to husband forever and ever, that our joy will be unending, that the struggles of this life will be over that the satisfactions of living the way that you had intended will finally be upon this creation once again. And we pray that as we come to this sacrament of the Lord's Supper that we might have an anticipation of that day, a foretaste of the banquet that we will enjoy for all times. Lord, we pray that our hearts will be drawn to you and that you would be honored and glorified by our worship. This we pray in your powerful name. Amen.